So in a couple of different contexts, one of the things that came up uh, in conversation yesterday was the, the, the kinds of superficiality that happens when people are in Boulder and they have an idea about what spiritual is and yet they can use that idea as a, like a, a covering for um, uh, being unkind, for being harsh, for not being connected, for not doing, not responding to the uh, present moment in ways that are, uh, are called for. And um, I heard many examples of it yesterday. Many, many examples of it. And the, the disconnect or the, like the, the superficiality of having the identity of being spiritual people and yet the reality is, is, is that when faced with challenges or in difficult situations, there's no real capacity to respond in a way which is skillful. You know, one example that I heard was, um, you know, somebody is renting, somebody had um, their property got destroyed by the flood and so they had to move, and so they were renting a place. And then the, the owner of the house uh, said to the renter, I've rented your house. I have a spiritual feeling that it will be in best interest of me and in service of others for me to rent your place to somebody else. And so without, without, um, without negotiating, without asking, without any sense of, um, you know, what is your sense about this? the spiritual life is being used as a justification for doing things that are um, not really caring or kind or helpful or supportive. And then I, I, uh, I heard another story of uh, a couple, a young couple who came to Boulder because they wanted to be in Boulder because they felt very aligned with the values there and the spirituality there. And they got pregnant and they had a baby and for reasons that were unknown the baby was fine and then all of a sudden the baby wasn't at all fine and so um, the baby uh, before the baby was born they couldn't detect a heartbeat so they could detect a heartbeat and then something happened they couldn't detect a heartbeat so it was a catastrophic birth and the baby was was on life support and, you know, had all kinds of tubes and intravenous and air and was on life support. And, you know, I mean, my goodness. And it was really much touch and go whether this little person was going to make it or not. And the mom wanted to go back home and get her clothes and get her food and get her car. And, and the couple had been very strongly um, advocates of spiritual values and advocates of wanting to come to Boulder so that they could be around other people who had spiritual values. And yet, in this situation that was a crisis with the uncertainty of how long this child was going to live, it wasn't really possible to be present with what was going on. And what they wanted to do, what she wanted to do, was return to what was comforting for her, you know. And as it turned out, the baby did not live, you know. So, you know, you've got a brand new child. It's not clear this child is going to live. And, you know, in that situation, the response was, I need my car. I need my clothes, you know. 
And so it was like, you know, what's happening here? There's this like idea about what it is to be spiritual, and yet the reality is, is that there's very little actual capacity to show up and respond with a measure of compassion to what's going on, you know? Um, or, you know, people say, I'm speaking my truth, and they use that in order to blast you or to, you know, to speak in ways which are harsh or disrespectful or aggressive or in a way where they're not talking about things in, in language which is clear about what's actually going on for them. It's just dumping. And they're using it in terms of, you know, I'm standing in my own power and I'm speaking my truth. So there's a spiritual language that is used to be disrespectful, to be unkind, to not show up, and all the rest of that. And so, you know, I was listening to, I heard four or five stories, different stories, that were different versions of the same thing. And for me, it's like, you know, well, how do you take bullshit and turn it into compost? How do you take an identification with being spiritual as an identity and use the values of it in order to actually um, be caring and kind and respectful and be able to be present with what's going on? You know, how do you shift? And in these various different conversations, you know, I was saying that it's actually a lot more uncommon than it is common that people who are committed in a spiritual path are willing to do the legwork to change from the bullshit to the compost. Because what happens for most people is, is, is that they come into a spiritual path and there's a lot of sincerity there's a lot of often idealism and there's a lot of enthusiasm. And then, after a certain period of time, the efforts that are made um, to really stay present with what's happening and to r respond with, with appropriateness begin to fade. And what happens instead is, is the identity of being spiritual takes over in lieu of the effort. And so... To reverse that or to not go there, to not be living a life where one has a, a label of being spiritual when in fact it's, um, one hasn't arrived at a lot of depth, is to really have a very sincere commitment about what is the, what is the purpose of being involved in spiritual practices. You know, what, what, what are they leading towards? So I want to use that as a segue for speaking about the Kalama Sutta. So just for, 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 uh, for the benefit, in case you're not familiar with the Buddha's discourses, the, the Buddha um, was um, experienced or realized awakening and then walked for 40 years and taught, and those teachings were memorized, and... Um, about 500 years after the Buddha died, they were written down, and they were written down as discourses. And so there's a whole um, bunch of different kinds of discourses that the Buddha gave, and so they were um, organized in different categories. So the, the, there's the long discourses, the middle-length discourses, the connected discourses, um, uh, and the numerical discourses. And just different ways of categorizing the various different things that the Buddha talked about. So the numerical discourses is the, the discourses that are put together 
because they have different numbers. So there's a there's the book of ones, the book of twos, the book of threes, all of that. And so this is this is the, the numerical discourses. So um, this is this is in the book of threes, and uh, the the name of the sutta is Kesa Putiya, but it's known as the Kalama Sutta. And the story is is that the Buddha was wandering on a tour among the Kosalans with a large gathering of monks, and he reached to the town of the Kalamas named Kesaputta. And they said, um, they, they wanted to ask him a question. And and they said, you know, there's there's all these different people. They have their own doctrines, but they disparage, denigrate, deride, and denounce the doctrines of others. And then more people come into town, and they also explain and elucidate their own doctrines. But when they do that, they also disparage and denigrate, deride, and denounce the doctrines of others. And so they said, you know, we don't know who to believe. We don't know what to follow. How can we, how can you help us, encourage us to decide what is the right discourse? And so the Buddha responded, well, it's actually correct to be in doubt because doubt has arisen in you about something that's doubtful, that's perplexing. It's hard to figure these things out. He said, when you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, these things are blameworthy, these things are censored by the wise, these things, if accepted and undertaken, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And so then he went on to say, what do you think? You know, when greed arises in a person, is it for his welfare or for his harm? So they said, you know, it's for his harm. And then he went on to elucidate, you know, in a, with a greedy person un- overcome by greed, with a mind obsessed by it, you know, that's a situation where somebody will destroy life, they'll take something that's not given. When somebody is overcome with lust, they'll get involved in sexual relationships that are outside of the bound of what's appropriate. A person can, because of greed, say things that are not true and and encourage somebody else to do all of the same things. And so in this way, when a person is obsessed with greed, it leads to harm and suffering for a long time. So then he said, you know, so what do you think? When hatred arises in a person, is it for his welfare or is it for his harm? And they said, it's for his harm, Bhante. And then he went on and he repeated the same list. So when you're filled with greed or hatred or delusion, those are the causes and conditions that give rise to transgressing the basic five precepts. So then he repeats this. He said, Kalamas don't go by oral tradition. Don't go by lineage of teachings. Don't go by hearsay or by a collection of scriptures, by logical reason, by inferential reasoning, by reason cognition, 
by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of the speaker, or because you think this ascetic is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, these things are blameworthy, these things are censored by the wise, these things, if accepted and undertaken, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. So then he goes on to the other list, when things are wholesome, when there's non-greed, when there's non-anger, when there's non-delusion, is this for somebody's welfare or for his harm? And then they say it's for his welfare. And these things are blameless. They're not blameworthy. And when they are accepted, when they are undertaken, they lean to the welfare and happiness, not to the or not. So he's asking these questions to get this group of people who are perplexed about how to decide which teachings to follow, to have them come to themselves uh, an understanding of a frame of reference that supports them. So without putting his own doctrine on top of them and saying, you should believe me because I'm the Buddha, he had them figure out for themselves what are the right things to believe. But in having them figure out for themselves what are the right things to believe, he comes back to the basic doctrine of, you know, following what is based in non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, and keeping the five precepts, which is the fundamental essence of his teachings. So the Buddha is being clever by not imposing his doctrine, but eliciting people's understanding that that is a skillful thing as a reference point to use and having that be a measuring stick for other teachers, whether or not uh, you should believe it or not believe it. And then he goes on to say, if... When you're unconfused... When you know for yourself these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things are praised by the wise, these things have accepted and undertaken lead to the health, welfare and happiness, then you should live in accordance of them. Then, Kalamas, the noble one said, who is d thus devoid of longing, devoid of ill will, unconfused, clearly comprehending, ever mindful, dwells pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, with a mind imbued with compassion, with a mind imbued with altruistic joy, with a mind imbued with equanimity, likewise the second, likewise the third, and likewise the fourth, above and below, across and everywhere, and to all as to himself. He, in, he dwells pervading the entire world with a mind imbued with these qualities of loving-kindness and joy and equanimity. And when your mind is clear like that and purified and undefiled, he has won four assurances in this very life. The first assurance he's won is that if there is another world, and if there is the fruit and result of good and bad deeds, it's possible that with the breakup of the body after death, I will be reborn in a good destination in a heavenly world. The second assurance 
is that if there is no other world, if there's no fruit and result of good and bad deeds, still right here in this very life, I made myself, I maintain myself in happiness without anonymity and ill will free of trouble. The third assurance is, is that suppose evil comes to one who does evil, then when I have no evil intentions towards anyone, how can suffering afflict me since I do no evil deed? And the fourth assurance he has won is supposed evil does not come to one who does not evil. Then right here I see myself purified in both aspects. Now what I find fascinating about this is, is that the Buddha has very clear understanding about which of these things are actually correct and things to believe. So the rest of the discourses are filled with expositions about the laws of karma and the laws of cause and effect and the significance of acting in a way which is skillful and the impact of what happens when you don't and the bad destinations that arise when you do certain kinds of deeds. It's, there's all kinds of references to that. And yet in this context, because he was speaking to the Kosalans who were not his disciples, they didn't actually have faith in him as a teacher. He was not telling them the way to believe. He was just illuminating that independent of how you believe, if you follow these fundamental principles of not engaging in actions which are filled with greed or anger or delusion, then the result will be wholesome. And those wholesome results are things that you can know for yourself. And those wholesome results will bring about these various different expressions of good results independent of what it is that you believe. And so in this sutta, he talks about it as if there is these things are on equal par. You know, the choice of believing that there is uh, rebirth or not believing that there's rebirth because he's dealing with a group of people who are not his students. And in the same way, you know, in this situation, he's saying, you know, know something for yourself, you know. And so this discourse has often been like the, the Magna Carta of free will in the Buddhist teachings because it says very explicitly to not take things based on tradition or on the scriptures or on the teacher, but to actually know it for yourself. But what one forgets to understand is, is that this teaching was given in context to a group of people who were not the Buddhist disciples. So it, he didn't give this to his monks or to his nuns and say, don't believe me. <laughs> Figure it out for yourself. He said it to a group of people who didn't have faith in him. So he's not asking us to, to, to disregard what he said. But in that context where a person doesn't actually understand the, the power of an awakened mind and the ability of it to actually see clearly and have faith that if one actually regards that or listens to that, there will be good result. If those conditions are not present then it is really important that a person is discerning of themselves as to what is skillful and not skillful. In situations when he was speaking to his monks, he gave them all kinds of very stern and sometimes very uh, harsh criticism if they did things that he told them not to do or he did things that were against his teachings. He didn't say, oh, that's wonderful, you did what you thought you should. <laughs> 
So one of the things that's helpful in a modern context is to understand that all of the teachings that the Buddha gave were given in context. And what can easily happen to all of us is, is that we misinterpret the talk context to suit our own personal aims of what we're actually wanting to believe. And, you know, it's just another manifestation of ignorance and ego that when we're doing things like that. But um, I love that sutta, you know, and I love the fact that he's not actually imposing, you know, he doesn't come up and say, hey, listen, guys, you know, I'm the real deal, you know. You know, I've got the real teachings, you know, all the other ones are idiots. You know, he doesn't go in and, and trump the others saying that I'm the highest, most enlightened person and therefore my teaching is the best. He has people reason and figure out for themselves what are the principles that are needed in order to be able to discern. And so one of the things that he's talking about here is, is, is that you have to have people who have faith in you before you can engage with them as a teacher. If they don't have faith in you, then you can't assume that they're going to be interested in believing or deeply considering what it is that you have to say. Now, there was another sutta, and I'm poor at remembering the names, but, you know, Sariputta, who was completely enlightened, he was an arhant. The Buddha asked Sariputta if Sariputta believed something that he said. And Sariputta responded, no, I don't believe what you said because I haven't seen for myself that it is true. And in that context, the Buddha really praised him as saying, that is correct, that is right. So there's different nuances of what it is that he's asking in terms of having people being able to contemplate for themselves and in what contexts. But certainly, I think it's really helpful for us to see both the value of having frameworks and parameters that gives us a frame of reference to help us decide and judge what's useful and what's not useful to believe in. Because in our world, in our contemporary world, there's so much that we have to filter and, um, and decide and participate in and, you know, engage with and um, decide if it's useful or not. And so it's really helpful to have rudders around what, what, is, what helps me wake up and what doesn't help me wake up. And what's the kind of waking up that I'm interested in? Because there's, you know, different people have different ideas about what the goal is. It's gonna, they're going to have different practices. They are going to have different results. So let's stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.